Welcome to tape number 12 of Truth, Victory Over Error, or the True Principles of the Christian Religion by David Dixon. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Truth's Victory Over Air by David Dixon, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing our reading with Truth's Victory Over Air, Chapter 33 of the Last Judgment, Question 1. Shall the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ be cast into everlasting torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power? Yes. Matthew, Matthew 25, verse 31 to the end. Romans 9, 22 and 23. Acts 3, 19. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, 8, 9. Well then, do not the Sassinians err who denying eternal death to be the extinguishing of the body and soul, maintain that the wicked are to suffer no torment in hell, and that their whole punishment will be to be deprived of eternity, or annihilated, that is, both soul and body turned into nothing? Yes. Do not likewise the Oregonists and some Anabaptists err who think that not only the wicked, but the devils themselves, after many torments in hell, shall be received by God into favor, and be made blessed and happy? Yes. The Oregonist would be spelled O-R-I-G-E-N-I-S-T-S. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the Apostle firms almost in so many words that which we have asserted, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 10. Second, because life eternal and life and death eternal are in Scripture opposed to one another in the same sense, Matthew 25:46. But life eternal in Scripture is not taken for being simply eternal, but for being eternally happy, or to be in a blessed eternal state and condition. Psalm 133, verse 3. Therefore, eternal death must be taken in Scripture, not for annihilation or being turned into nothing, but for an eternal, wretched, and miserable state and condition. Third, because the Scripture says, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, verse 12 and 13. Fourth, because the scripture affirms expressly that the wicked are tormented in hell, Luke 16, verse 24. 
Next, there are some degrees of torment there, but there are no degrees of not to be. Fifth, because Abraham says expressly, there can be no man pass from the place of torment to the place of bliss and happiness. Luke 16, verse 26. Six, because the torments of the wicked are called a worm that dieth not, a fire that cannot be extinguished. Seventh, because the scripture says that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Revelation 14, verse 11, and Revelation 19, verse 3. Eighth, because the wicked will be carried in everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 46. And the same wicked are to rise again to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, verse 2 and to suffer the vengeance of everlasting fire, Jude, verse 7. And now only is the accepted time, and now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. For the benefit of the listener, I'm going to read an alphabetical list of the proper and patronymic names of the authors of the old and late heresies confuted in the foregoing treatise. The Adamites so-called for one Adam, the author of their sect, or from the first man Adam, whose nakedness they imitate in their stoves and convectiles after the example of Adam and Eve in paradise. The anthropomorphites, so-called from two Greek words, anthropos, a man, and morph, a form or figure or shape, because they maintain that God had a body and was endowed with human shape. The Arians, from Arius, a Libyan by birth and a presbyter of Alexandria by profession, this heresy break out under Constantine 290 years after Christ and overran a great part of the world. It was condemned in the first famous council of Nice, gathered by Constantine's appointment, Anno 325. Arminians, so-called for James Arminius, divinity leader in in Leyden, who 1605 published and maintained five articles which have occasioned great trouble to the Church of God, being eagerly maintained by his followers, followers called Remonstrance. The five articles are concerning predestination, redemption, God's grace, free will, and perseverance. Anabaptists, so called from rebaptizing, had for their author one Nicholas Stork. S-T-O-R-C-K who pretended familiarity with God by an angel promising him a kingdom if he would reform the church and destroy the princes that would hinder him. The Antominians so called from two Greek words anti, against, and nomos the law. They sprung up from one John Agricola A-G-R-I-C-O-L-A who affirmed that the moral law was altogether needless and that Christians were not tied to the observation thereof. This sect sprung up about the year 1535. The Arabians, so named from Arabia, the country where their heresy was broached and maintained under Philip the emperor two seventeen years after Christ. The Brownists, so called from their author, Mr. Roger Brown, of North Hamptonshire in England, sometimes a schoolmaster at Southmark, Southwark, 
hold there is no other pure church in the world but among themselves, as did the Donatists of old. The Dominicans, one of the popish order, so-called from Dominicus, a Spaniard, they were instituted by Pope Innocent III, Anno 1205. This man with twelve abbots were appointed to preach down the doctrine of the Albigenes, that's A-L-B-I-G-E-N-S-E-S, who by their preaching did so incense the princes that they took arms and killed a hundred thousand of them. They were the, of the same religion with the old nonconformists in England who were called Puritans. The Donatus, from Donatus, and D-O-N-A-T-U-S, born in Numidia in Africa, who, because Sicilian was preferred bishop before him to the bishopric of Carthage, accused him and all the bishops which had ordained him to be traitors, that is, such as had delivered up Bibles to be burned by idolaters under persecution of Maximus. The Epicureans, from one Epicurus, an old heathen philosopher who placed men's chief happiness in the pleasure of the mind, he denied providence and taught the world was made of by the concourse of atoms. Eutychians, that's E-U-T-Y-C-H-I-A-N-S, so named from Eutychus, an abbot of Constantinople, this man's heresies were condemned by the Fourth General Council held at Chalcedon under the Emperor Martin, Martinius, Anno 451. Erastians, so-called from Thomas Erastius, a physician in Heidelberg in Germany, who followed this man's footsteps, having taken away from the church all discipline and government, and put it into the hands of the civil magistrate. The enthusiast, so-called from the Greek word enthusiado or enthusio in Latin, fanatico, I am inspired or acted, acted with a prophetical or divine fury. The Franciscans, another popish order, so-called from one Francis, an Italian merchant, who before his conversion as the papacy lived a wicked and debauched life, he gathered many disciples on 1198 and appointed them to be obedient to Christ and the Pope. The familiarist, or one of the family of love, whose author was one Henry Nicholas, a Hollander. The first founder was one David George of Delft, D-E-L-S-T, who called himself the true David that should restore the kingdom to Israel. They maintained many dangerous opinions. Greeks are those who inhabit Greece vis-a-vis Macedon, Epirus, Bulgaria, Moldavia, and others. They place much of their religion in the worship of the Virgin Mary and of painted but not carved images. The Hemerobaptists, that's H-E-M-E-R-O-B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S, so-called from two Greek words, Hemera, a day, and Baptisto, to baptize because they maintain that men and women, according to their faults committed every day, ought every day to be baptized. The Jesuits, so called from our blessed Savior's name, Jesus, which they falsely assumed to themselves, they were instituted on 1540 by Ignatius Loyola, first a soldier. They are all well bred in philosophy and school divinity and in many other arts and sciences, and therefore they are employed as emissaries from the Pope 
and his conclave to advance the popish religion. The Judaizers, so-called because they think that all the Jewish ceremonies are still in force and binding on us who live under the gospel. The independents, so-called because they will have every particular congregation to be ruled by their own laws without dependency upon any other church. The libertines, from the liberty and freedom they take and give to others to commit sin. Their first author was one Quintinius, or Quintinus, Q-U-I-N-T-I-N-U-S, a tailor in Picardy, Picardy, excuse me, P-I-C-C-A-R-D-Y, who taught that whatsoever good or evil we did was not done by us, but by God's Spirit in us, and many other blasphemous opinions. The Lutherans, who so call themselves lying and falsely from Martin Luther, that eminent man of God. The Manichaeans, from one one Manus, M-A-N-E-S, a Persian by birth and a servant by condition. The Manichaean sect was the sink of all former heresies. The Macedonians, so called from one Macedonus, Bishop of Constantinople, 312 years after Christ. Their heresy was condemned in the Second General Council held at Constantinople by Gratian and Theodosius, Anno 380. His followers were called Pneumatomachians, fighters against the Holy Spirit. Pneuma, a spirit, and Matsia, a to fight. Marcionite, from one Marcion, a scholar near the Euxian Sea who was Serdon's scholar, a grand heretic. He maintained Serdon's heresies at Rome about 133 years after Christ. The Nestorians, so-called from Nestorius, patriarch of Constantinople, who broached his heirs under Theodosius the Younger, 400 years after Christ. They made Christ to have two persons, as he had two natures. This heresy was condemned by the Third General Council held at Ephesus under Theodosius the Younger, Anno 431. The Novatians, so-called for Novatus, who lived under Decius, the emperor, 220 years after Christ. He was an African by birth. The Origenists, O-R-I-G-E-N-I-S-T-S, so-called from the famous origin, his heirs began to spread about the year of Christ, 247, under Aurelian, the emperor, and continued about 300 and 34 years. The Pelagians, from Pelagius, a Briton, as they say, by birth, a monk at Rome, afterwards a presbyter under Theodosius the Younger. The Puritans, otherwise called Carthari, K-A-T-H-A-R-Y-I, because they esteem themselves purer and holy than others. The Photinians, from Photinus, born in the lesser Galatia, he began to spread his heresies about the year 323, where he was bishop under Constantinus, the emperor. The papers are too well known. They are to be found in every page almost of the book. Quakers, so-called because sometimes they use the quake and tremble when they prophesy or when they are in a rapture. Socinians, so-called from one Faustus Socinius, an Italian of Stena, they place all religion in the old condemned heresies, following their master, a most vile heretic. The Sabellians, that's S-A-B-E-L-L-I-A-N-S, 
so-called from Sabellus, an African by birth, his heresies began Anno 224. The separatists, so-called because they withdrew themselves from the Christian communion and followed others in the worship of God. The skeptics, commonly called seekers, maintain that the whole universe, whole universal church hath perished a little after the apostles' time and are not to this day restored until Christ from heaven shall send new apostles for raising up against the church visible. The Sabbatarians, so-called because they observe the Jewish Sabbath, imagining there is no precept or example in the New Testament for observing the first day of the week. The Triathites, or the Triathia, so-called because they divided the indivisible essence of the Godhead into three parts, the one they call the Father, the other the Son, the third the Holy Ghost. And that's spelled T-R-I-T-H-E-I-T-S, or T-R-I-T-H-E-I-T-A-E. The Tertullianists were so called from that famous lawyer and divine, Tertullian, who lived under Sir Severus, the emperor, about 170 years after Christ. The Vorstians, from one Vorstus, an old heretic who taught that God had a body and was endowed with parts. The Veninians, that's V-A-N-I-N-I-A-N-S, from one Vanius, a great promoter of atheism. He was publicly burnt at Toulouse. The following is taken from a short account of the life of the Reverend David Dixon, as written by the Reverend Robert Rudrow, beginning on page 9 of the preset uh, document. If ever a Scots biography and the lives of our eminent ministers and Christians be published, Mr. Dixon would shine there as a star of the first magnitude, till such necessary work appear which would require able hands and much help from such as have the remains of our worthies in possession, I shall drop a few hints of what I have met with as to this good man. Mr. David Dixon was the only son of John Dick, or Dixon, merchant of Glasgow, whose father was an old fear and possessor of some lands in the barony of Fintry and parish of St. Nicholas, called the Kirk of the Muir. His parents were religious persons of considerable substance and many years married before they had this child, and he was the only one ever they had, as I am informed. As he was a Samuel, asked of the Lord, so he was early devoted to him and the ministry. Yet afterwards the vow was forgot, till providence, by a rod and sore sickness on their son, brought their sin to remembrance, and then he was put to renew his studies, which he had left, and at the University of Glasgow, he made very great progress in them. Soon after he had received the degree of Master of Arts, he was admitted Regent or Professor of Philosophy in that college, where he was very useful in training up the youth in solid learning. And with the learned principal, Boyd of Trockridge, the worthy Mr. Robert Blair and other pious ministers, excuse me, members of that learned society, his pains were singularly blessed in reviving decayed serious piety among the youths in that declining and corrupted time a little after the imposing of prelacy upon us 
by a recommendation of the General Assembly not long after our reformation from popery, the regents were only to continue eight years in their possession, after which such as were found qualified were licensed and upon calls after trial admitted to the holy ministry. By this constitution, this church came to be filled with ministers well seen in all the branches of useful learning. Accordingly, Mr. Dixon was, 1618, ordained minister to the town of Irvine, where he labored about 23 years. That very year, the corrupt assembly at Perth agreed to the five known articles palmed upon this church by the king and prelates. Mr. Dixon had not much studied these questions till the articles were imposed by this meeting. Then he closely examined them, and the more he looked into them, the more aversion he found to them. And when some time after, by a sore sickness, he was brought within views of death and eternity, he gave open testimony of their sinfulness. When this came to take air, Mr. James Law, Archbishop of Glasgow, summoned him to appear before the High Commission, January 29, 1622. Mr. Dixon, at his entrance to his ministry at Irvine, had preached upon 2 Corinthians 5.11, the first part, Knowing the terrors of the Lord, we persuade men. When at this juncture he apprehended a separation, at least for a time, the Sabbath before his appearance, he chose the next words of that verse, But we are made manifest unto God. Extraordinary power and singular moving of affections accompanied that parting sermon. According to the summons, Mr. Dixon appeared before the commission the day named. His prudent carriage, the decline nature he gave in, the railing of Archbishop Spotwood, thereupon the sentence of deprivation and confinement to Tura passed upon him, and with his Christian speech upon the intimation of it, are to be found in Mr. Calderwood's history. After much intercession with the bishops and various turns in this affair, narrated by the last-named historian, he got liberty to quit Turriff and returned to his longing flock July 1623, where his ministerial work was no more interrupted until he was called to a more important station, as we shall hear. At Irvine, Mr. Dixon's ministry was singularly countenanced of God. Multitudes were convinced and converted, and few that lived in his day were more honored to be instruments of conversion than he. People under exercise and soul concerns came from every place about Irvine and attended upon his sermons, and the most eminent and serious Christians from all corners of the church came and joined with him at his communion, which were indeed times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord of these amiable institutions. Yea, not a few came from distant places and settled in Irvine that they might be under the drop of his ministry. Yet he himself used to observe that the vintage of Irvine was not equal to the gleanings and not once to be compared to the harvest of at Ayr, that's A-Y-R, in Mr. John Welch's time, when indeed the gospel had wonderful success in conviction, conversion, and confirmations. Mr. Dixon had his weekday sermons upon the Mondays, the market days then at Irvine. Upon the Sabbath evenings, many persons under soul distress used to report to his house after sermons, when usually he spent an hour or two in answering their cases and directing and comforting those who were cast down 
in all which he had an extraordinary talent. Indeed, he had the tongue of the learned and knew how to speak a word in a season to the weary soul. In a large hall he had in his house at Irvine, there would have been, as I am informed by old Christians, several scores of serious Christians waiting for him when he came from the church. Those with the people round the town who came into the market at Irvine made the church as throng, if not thronger, on the Mondays as on the Lord's Day by those weekday sermons. The famous Stewarttown sickness was begun about the year 1630 and spread from house to house for so many miles in the strath where Stewarttown waters run on both sides of it. Satan indeed endeavored to bring a reproach upon the serious persons who were at that time under the convincing work of the Spirit by running some seemingly under serious concern to excesses both in time of sermon, sermon and in families. But the Lord enabled Mr. Dixon and, and other ministers who dealt with them to act so prudent a part that Satan's design was much disappointed and solid, serious, practical religion flourished mightily in the west of Scotland about this time under the hardship of prelacy. About the year 1632, some of our Scotch ministers, Mr. Robert Blair, Mr. John Livingston, and others, settled among the Scotch in the north of Ireland, were remarkably owned of the Lord, and their ministry and communions about the six-mile water were made useful for reviving religion and the power and practice of it. The Irish prelates, to the instigation of ours, got them removed for a season, much against excellent Bishop Usher's mind. When silenced and come over to Scotland about the year 1638, Mr. Dixon employed Messrs. Blair, Livingston, and Cunningham at his communion. For this he was called before the High Commission. He soon got rid of this trouble, the prelate's power being now on the decline. I have some of Mr. Dixon's sermons at Irvine taken from his mouth. They are full of solid, substantial matter, very scriptural, in a very familiar style, not low, but extremely strong, plain, and affecting. It is somewhat akin to Mr. Rutherford's in his admirable letters. I have been told by some old ministers that, that fear scarce anybody of that time came so near Mr. Dixon's style and method in preaching as the Reverend Mr. William Guthrie, minister of Fenwick, who equaled if not exceeded him here. As Mr. Dixon was so singularly useful in his public ministration, so I could give many instances of his usefulness more privately, both to Christians in answering their perplexing cases of conscience and students who had an eye to the ministry while he was at Irvine. His prudent directions, cautions, and encouragements given them were extremely useful and beneficial. I could also give examples of his usefulness to his very enemies and the Lord's making what he spoke to one that robbed him in the road to Edinburgh. Of a considerable sum of money, the occasion of the poor youth's change of life, and at length of real conversion, the account of which I have from a worthy person who had it from himself, but there is not room here to enlarge on these things. It was Mr. Dixon who brought the presbytery of Irvine to supplicate the council, 1637, for a suspension of a charge given to ministers to buy and use the service book. At that time, four supplications from different quarters without any cons concern in the supplicants 
met at the council house door to their mutual surprise and encouragement. These were the small beginnings of that happy turn of affairs that in next years of which it were to be wished we had fuller and better accounts than yet have been published. In that great revolution Mr. Dixon bore no small share. He was sent to Aberdeen with Messrs. Henderson and Cant, C-A-N-T, by the Covenanters, to persuade that city and country about to join in renewing the land's covenant with the Lord. This brought him to bear a great part in the debates with the learned doctors Forbes, Barron, Sibald, and others at Aberdeen, which being in print, I say no more of them. When the king was prevailed with to allow a free general assembly at Glasgow, November 1638, Mr. Dixon and Mr. Bailey from the Presbytery of Irvine made a great figure there. In all the important matters before that grave meeting, he was very useful, but Mr. Dixon signalized himself a seasonable and prudent speech he had when His Majesty's Commissioner threatened to leave the assembly. It is in mine eye but too long to stand here and too important and nervous to abridge. In the eleventh session, December 5th, he had another most learned discourse against Arminianism, which I also omit. The reports of the Lord's eminent countenancing Mr. Dixon's ministry at Irvine had ever this time spread through all this church, but his eminent prudence, learning, and holy zeal came to be universally known, especially to ministers, from the part he bore in the assembly at Glasgow so that he was almost unanimously chosen moderator to the next General Assembly at Edinburgh, August 1639. Many of his speeches and instances of his wise management at so critical a juncture are before me in a manuscript account of that assembly. In the tenth session, the city of Glasgow presented a call to him, but partly because of his own aversion and the vigorous appearances of the Earl of Eglinton and his loving people, and mostly from the remarkable usefulness of his ministry in that corner, the General Assembly continued him at Irvine. But not long after, 1641, he was transported to be Professor of Divinity in the University of Glasgow, where he did great services to the Church and interest of real religion by training up many youths for the Holy Ministry. Notwithstanding of his laborious work amongst them, he preached every Lord's Day forenoon in the high church there, and got in, and I think had for his colleague the learned and zealous Mr. Patrick Gillespie. In the year 1643, the church laid a very great work on him, Mr. Henderson and Mr. Calderwood, to form the draft of a directory for public worship as appears by the Acts of Assembly. When the pestilence was raging at Glasgow, 1673, the masters and students of the university removed to Irvine upon Mr. Dixon's motion. There the holy and learned Mr. Durham passed his trials and was earnestly recommended by the professor to the presbytery and magistrates of Glasgow, Glasgow in a little time ordained minister to that city. For the benefit of the listener, I'd like to read an anecdote taken from the life of Mr. James Durham from John Howey's Scottish Worthies with respect to the relationship between James Durham and David Dixon. 
on page 222, beginning as follows. His, meaning James Durham's call and coming forth to the ministry was somewhat remarkable, for in the time when the Civil Wars broke forth, several gentlemen being in arms for the cause of religion, among whom he was chosen and called to be a captain, again, James Durham is make, made reference here, in which station he behaved himself like another Cornelius, being a devout man and one that feared God with all his house and prayed to God always with his company. When the Scots army were about to engage with the English, he judged me to call his company to prayer before the engagement, and as he began to pray, Mr. David Dixon, then professor of divinity at Glasgow, coming past the army, seeing the soldiers addressing themselves to prayer and hearing the voice of one praying, drew near alighted from his horse and joined with them, and was so much taken with Mr. Durham's prayer that he called for the captain, and having conversed with him a little, he solemnly charged him that as soon as his piece of service was over, he should devote himself to serve God in the holy ministry, for to that he judged the Lord called him. Now back to the short account of the life of Mr. David Dixon. Great was the friendship and familiarity between these two eminent lights of the church there, and among other effects of their familiar conversation, which still turned upon profitable subjects and designs, we have the sum of saving knowledge, which hath been so often printed with our confession of faith and catechisms. This, after several conversations and thinking upon the subject and manner of handling it, so as it might be most useful to vulgar capacities was by Messrs. Dixon and Durham dictated to a reverend minister who informed me about the year 1650. It was the deed of these two great men, and though never judicially approved by this church, deserves to be much more read and considered than I fear it is. About this time, Mr. Dixon had a great share in the printed pamphlets upon the unhappy debates betwixt the resolutioners and protesters. He was, in his opinion, for the public resolutions, and most of the papers upon that side were written by him, Mr. Robert Bailey, and Mr. Robert Douglas, as those on the other side were written by Mr. James Guthrie, Mr. Patrick Gillespie, and a few others. I have not inquired into the exact time when Mr. Dixon was transported from the profession of divinity at Glasgow to the same work at Edinburgh, but I take it to have been about this time. It was, I think, at Edinburgh. He dictated in Latin to his scholars what is here presented to the re reader in English, there making reference to truth's triumph over error, a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. There he continued his laborious care of students of divinity, the growing hopes of a church, and either at Glasgow or Edinburgh, most parts of the Presbyterian ministers, at least in the west, south, and east parts of Scotland, from the year 1640 to the Happy Resolution, Revolution, were under his inspection. And from this very book we may perceive his care to educate them in the form of sound words and to ground them solidly in the excellent standards of doctrine agreed to by this church. May it still be the care and mercy of the Church of Scotland to preserve and hand down to posterity the scriptural pure doctrine delivered by our first reformers to Mr. Dixon and his contemporaries and from him and the other great lights of his day 
handed down to us now upon the stage without corruption and declining to right or left hand. Mr. Dixon continued at Edinburgh, discharging his great trust with faithfulness and diligence until the melancholy turn by the restoration of prelacy upon King Charles' return, when, for refusing the oath of supremacy, he was, with many other worthies, turned out. His heart was broke with the heavy change on the beautiful face of this Reformed Church. He was now well stricken in years, his labor and work was over, and he ripe for his glorious reward. Accordingly, in 1662 he fell extremely weak. Mr. John Livingston, now suffering for the same cause with him and under a sentence of banishment for refusing the foresaid oath, came to visit Mr. Dixon on his deathbed. They had been intimate friends near fifty years and now rejoiced together as fellow confessors. When Mr. Livingston asked the professor how he found himself, his answer was, quote, I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and cast them through each other in a heap before the Lord and shed from both, excuse me, and fled from both and betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and in him I have sweet peace, end quote. Mr. Dixon's youngest son gave my informer, a worthy minister yet alive, this account of his father's death. Having been very weak and slow for some days, he called the family together and spoke in particular to each of them. And when he had gone through them all, he pronounced the words of the apostolical blessing of 2 Corinthians 13:14, with much gravity and solemnity, and then put up his head, hand, and closed his own eyes, and without any struggle or apparent pain, immediately expired in the arms of his sons, my brothers and former. Mr. Dixon married Margaret Robertson, daughter to Archibald Robertson of Stonewall, a younger brother of the house of Ernock in the Shire of Lanark. By her he had three sons, John Dixon, clerk to the Exchester of Scotland, Mr. Alexander Dixon, professor of the Hebrew tongue in the College of Edinburgh, and Mr. Archibald Dixon, who lived with his family in the parish of Irvine. By these he hath left a numerous posterity. It remains only now that I, have, I give some account of Mr. Dixon's writings and works he hath left behind him in print and in manuscript, which speak when he is dead. He was concerned in, and I am ready to think, one principal mover of that concert among several worthy ministers of this church for the publishing short, plain, and practical expositions upon the whole Bible. I cannot recover all their names who were engaged in this work, but I know Messrs. Robert Douglas, Rutherford, Robert Blair, George Hutchinson, James Ferguson, Alexander Nisbet, James Durham, John Smith, and some others had particular books of Holy Scripture allotted to them. The labors of the most of these are published, and the works of others them yet remain in manuscript. Mr. Dixon, with whom at present I am only concerned, published his commentary on the Hebrews, on Matthew, on the Psalms, on the Epistles in Latin and English, and in folio. His therapeutical sacra, or cases of conscience, resolved into Latin and into English. A treatises of the promises. Besides these, he wrote a great part of the answers to the demands and duplies to replies of the doctors of Aberdeen, and some of the pamphlets in defense of the public resolutions that have been observed with some short poems on pious and serious subjects. 
which I am told have been very useful when printed and spread among country people and servants, such as the Christian sacrifice, O Mother Dear Jerusalem, and one somewhat larger entitled True Christian Love to be sung with the common tunes of the psalm. This is all of his I have, been, I have seen in print. Several of his manuscripts remain unprinted. His first paper upon the public resolutions, his reply to Mr. Patrick Gillespie and Mr. James Guthrie, his no separation of the well-affected from the army. I am not sure, but some of these may be in print. They are generally pretty large papers of several sheets in writing. His sermons at Irvine upon 1 Timothy 1, 5, I have mentioned already, I doubt not, but many more of his valuable papers are in the hands of others, such as his precepts for a daily direction of the Christian's conversation, the grounds of the true Christian religion by way of catechism for his congregation at Irvine, a compend of his sermons upon Jeremiah and the Lamentations, and the first nine chapters of the Epistle to the Romans. These I have not seen, but I know they are in the hands of ministers. I do not mention his truth's victory over error, since it follows here in English, which would lead me to end this preface with a few hints of the usefulness of this book the reader hath now in his hands. It would be arrogance and insufferable presumption in me to offer to recommend anything of the learned Professor Dixon's. His praise is in the churches, and particularly in this. Anything of his is far above a recommendation from so mean a hand as mine, and needs no eulogy from any. All I have in my view is to point out the Reformation about her summaries of doctrine and confessions of faith, and to put the common people in whose hands this book may come in mind of the benefits and advantages they may have by their careful perusal of it, and comparing what is here with our excellent confession itself, and above all with the scriptures upon which our confession is founded, and by which it is proven which I am assured will be very great if there be a serious dependence upon the Father of lights through his Son by a lively faith for the spirit of illumination, wisdom, and revelation, without whom there is no spiritual saving or truly useful knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. Our excellent reformers began their work, 1550, with an excellent summary of Christian doctrine which both ministers and professors harmoniously subscribed and the estates of Parliament embodied with the standing laws of this kingdom as the public author authorized doctrine. About twenty years after, upon the restless and almost constant attempts of papists against our scriptural and reformation establishment in doctrine, worship, discipline, and Presbyterian government, our national covenant containing a negative confession of faith especially leveled against popery was formed by the king's command sworn and subscribed by his majesty and family and then by act of council and by several acts of the general assembly was sworn and subscribed by all ranks of protestants in scotland after it had been carefully explained and cleared up by ministers to their people in every congregation these confessions continued as a public standard as the public standards of the doctrine of the Church of Scotland and were subscribed by the ministers and other church officers till prelacy was forced in upon us. With this, a 
deluge of looseness in principles and practice came in. The managers under prelacy seemed to lay this down as a rule in their procedure, to depart as far as they could with the name of Protestants from the former usages and practices of our Presbyterian reformers. And when they had got the government and reformation discipline solemnly engaged unto in the national covenant, overturned and after they had innovated our pure and scriptural worship by new forms in the corrupt assembly, 1616, and had gone greater lengths this way two years after in their meeting at Perth, they found it proper also to draw up a new confession of faith. Matters as yet were not ripened, indeed, for such alterations in doctrine as afterwards broke in, and as far as I have observed, the doctrine of their new confession is pretty safe, and to that likewise subscription was required. But when there is no scriptural government and discipline, the hedges Christ hath appointed for the preservation of the truth, it appears to me impossible that the doctrine of a church can remain long in any tolerable state. Accordingly, popery and Pelagianism, better known under the name of Arminianism, very soon overspread this church with prelacy. This is candidly acknowledged by our celebrated historian, Bishop Burnett, in his memoirs, and what he hath said might be fully vouched and more enlarged from many remains of that period. It is now more than evident that by the influence of Bishop Loud, that's L-A-U-D, and the party whereof he was the head, and the Reformation doctrine in England till the anti-Pelagian and perfectly agreeable to that of the rest of the Reformed churches, as well as, our, as well as ours in Scotland, by his interest with our bishops, who were all at his devotion, were brought to a terrible degree of corruption. Pelagian and Popish tenants were then the only road to preferment, and such as fell in with them were highly caressed, all which was evidently done to poison the kingdoms with slavish and arbitrary principles and to destroy our civil rights and liberties, of which pure scriptural doctrine is a greater preservative than many in this loose age consider. This ends the reading of side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. When manners were at this low pass in Scotland and all and our all as to religion and property in the utmost hazard, the known struggles for both were made sixteen thirty seven and sixteen thirty eight by our nobility, gentry, and ministers. They began after regular complaints and supplications with renewing their and the land's covenant with the Lord and solemnly engaged themselves to stand by the Reformation doctrine in the national covenant which necessarily, naturally, and plainly took in our own scriptural government and discipline in use and practice. This great turn in a few years grew up to a solemn contract and covenant with the English nation and the consequence of which was endeavors after uniformity in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government in order to which the learned and grave synods of divines who met at Westminster was called a meeting for piety, solid and extensive learning, and all other qualities necessary for the great work they had to do, equaled by very few and surpassed by none since the primitive times of Christianity. By them, with the assistance of our Scotch commissions, was formed our present confession of faith, the best summary of doctrine I know of in the Reformed churches. 
This excellent confession was, after mature examination, unanimously agreed to by our General Assembly in their Act 1647 and received solemnly as the standard of doctrine professed and preached by all the members, ministers, and church officers in this Reformed Church of Scotland and in consequence of our solemn dedication to the Lord as a church and land. And certainly it was one of the greatest mercies to us and posterity that soon after the never-to-be-forgotten revolution brought about by that great instrument of divine providence, the late glorious King William, that excellent composure was publicly examined and approved, received the sanction of King and Parliament, and was made part of our legal constitution and establishment. God himself strengthened what he had wrought for us and created a defense over all the glory. The scriptural doctrine contained in this our excellent confession is what everyone ought to peruse, understand, and compare with the holy oracles, the only rule of faith and practice. Our confession of faith is the, sound, is the form of sound words which we ought to hold fast in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. These forms and summaries of Christian doctrine drawn from the inspired scriptures have been used in the first and purest ages of Christianity and since the Reformation, not only by this church, but as far as I can observe by all who have separated themselves from the abominations of popery and that with greater advantages and for so many excellent purposes. These being founded upon the scriptures and supported by them cannot possibly contain anything contrary to Christian liberty or our impartial inquiry into the mind of God discovered in his word. But our excellent helps, especially to common people, to search the scriptures and put them in case to give reason of the hope which is in them to every one that asks it. If at this day these excellent summaries are ridiculed and opposed by deists and free thinkers, by Socinians, Arians, and Arminians, I should think this should be no strong argument with sober and impartial inquirers into the truth to lay them aside, but rather should raise our hearty concern for them as valuable means for knowing and securing the great truths of Christianity in so loose an age when the foundations are in hazard to be destroyed. I hope and pray that this boundless latitude may never gain ground in this church which hath now nearly 200 years experience of good effects of this excellent means for preserving the purity of doctrine among us. Nos has been lately raised among our neighbors against confessions of faith as engines of popery, shackles upon knowledge, and many other hard epitaphs. The fair and candid way in this outcry has been, had been, in my humble opinion, to have overboard attacked the doctrine of our Westminster Confession and proven it inconsistent with the Holy Scriptures. That, it seems, appeared a hard task, and if it was much earlier to make a general cry of imposition, inquisition, and the like, anything like argument which I have noticed in this unhappy debate strikes against translations of the Scripture by men not inspired, and at this rate we must go back to one of the worst branches of popery, or it levels against all government, order, and ministerial authority and power in the church as a scriptural society set up by the great God, our Savior. And thus we must fall into anarchy and confusion and by a licentious liberty 
everyone be left to do what is good in his own eyes to the ruin of real practical Christianity and no small hazard to civil society. Far be it from me to charge those consequences upon the opposers of confessions of faith. I hope when they come to lay aside their present bigotry and heat and impartially weigh matters, they will see their arguments prove too much, much more than they design if they prove anything at all and naturally lead to all the excesses of deists and free thinkers. Let me only add that a little reflection and cool inquiry will also discover that the subscribing the real sense of the scripture as well as the words of it must be a reasonable and good means to maintain the doctrine and truths in it. We are now fallen into the last perilous times when damnable errors are breaking out and the foundation truths of our holy religion are called in question. It must then highly concern all to be established in the faith and the present truth. In the first and chief room we ought to have our understandings opened that we may understand the scriptures and to search and study these with the greatest sincerity, diligence, and dependence on the Holy Spirit of Christ. One excellent help to this, at least, as so much who cannot dip into the originals and make use of the larger and more learned treatises of great and good men will be a full and thorough acquaintance with our confession of faith. There is scriptural truth which makes us free is brought down to the level of all and those things which for great and wise ends are scattered up and down the word of God are brought together in an easy, plain and convincing order and when compared with their scriptural proofs and foundations cannot fail to be singularly useful. The following book, as it were, breaks the truths in our confession small and prepares them for the meanest capacities. The learned author brings in the different errors under proper heads and in a most plain and solid way refutes them from the Holy Scriptures. At once he discovers the design of the particular branches of our excellent confession of faith. He establishes the truth therein laid down and guards against the gangrene and poison of contrary errors with judgment and perspicuity and in a manner far above any character I can give. I shall only add my humble and earnest witness that this treatise may, through God's blessing, be made useful to establish those into whose hands it comes in the truth and faith for which we ought to contend earnestly to guard many against the growing looseness and errors of this time and tend to the increase of solid, real knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, which I am persuaded was the worthy author's view in writing of it. Eastwood, January 5th, 1726, Robert Woodrow. And with that, this concludes the reading of Truth Victory Over Air by David Dixon. This Reformation audio resource is production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5.
If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Book in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listing. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed book.